morning, Journey Church. Those of you in here, those of you who are joining us online, and it's nice to be back. Let me tell you, last Sunday at this exact time, my entire family, that is to say my wife and myself, our four children, a son-in-law, a granddaughter, and a fiancé, were all in a Disney theme park called Epcot. Epcot Center, as I remember it from uh, my childhood when they were actually building it, but we were at Epcot at this time last Sunday. Um, We had no idea how wonderful and complex Epcot was. Hey, by the way, she's right where she's supposed to be. This is okay. Okay, so just relax. God bless. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. Aren't you so thankful that she's here? Well, Epcot was fascinating due to its immensity and intricacy. The problem is that we didn't actually discover that until 5.30 that evening. And let me tell you why. Epcot's the place that has the giant golf ball, right? And then the way we did the park is there's so many things near the entrance that that's where we were until 5.30 at night. There's a huge lake, right? And you can see, oh, there's a bunch of buildings. I don't know what those really are. But at 5.30, we said it's time to go get dinner. And we heard that there's like different kinds of food around the world. It wasn't until 5.30 that we actually started to walk around the lake. And my wife and I going, my goodness, this is amazing. And then by that time, there wasn't even enough time to, to, to explore. It goes about three layers deep of buildings, So you go from like Norway and you go to Germany and you go to England and you smell fish and chips frying and then you go over a bridge and you're in France and then you're in in suddenly in Arabia and then you're in Japan and then you're in uh, 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 China and then you're in Mexico and, and, and this is like three layers deep. But the problem is we spent almost the whole day just wandering around the golf ball. Finding Nemo is there in a huge aquarium. It's awesome. Uh, there's a, a, a Chevrolet test track thing. And then a, I guess you, can, you, you fly with NASA and a few things on that end. But we had no idea the richness of Epcot. Like so many others, we were content to go inside the park, camp out by the fountain and eat Twinkies or technically churros lollygagging, meandering, but not these two. Yeah, my two youngest children, and Holly goes, oh, I knew, I knew. These two are crazy, nonstop, go, go, go. And, and by the way, they know the intricacies of the Disney deal. You can see the, the lanyard around my daughter's neck. There's like pins, and she's going, oh, hold on, I'll meet you at Splash Mountain. I'm going to go trade pins. What is that? And yet, sure enough, she comes like loaded up in, in different pins, and there's like this whole underworld of insider stuff going on. There was one day that, a couple days that we go, hey, we got to take a break. We're going to the condo or to the wherever we stay at two different places, and Holly goes, leave me here. Like dawn till dusk, all out, pedal to the metal, leave me here. Oh, we're going to go take a rest. And just, just drink it in. Isn't this so much like real life in like so many of us in our faith? 
You know that Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and because of our simple faith that's been given to us in all park hopper pass. All out, it's all yours. By the way, the food's all paid for. And by the way, that kingdom pass begins now. We think, no, 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 like heaven when we die. We're going to get into the kingdom someday. And the Lord Jesus goes, no, do you believe in what I did for you? I've given you this pass. The kingdom of God begins now. Please don't go inside the park by the golf ball and sit down and eat churros. Eternal life is described not as the life you get when you die. Jesus said it himself, this is eternal life that they may know you and the one whom you have sent. That knowing God personally and relationally is right here, right now. Yet so many believers, it's, it's just a part of their life. And in the same manner, they sit down right inside the entrance. You know, Jesus talked about being the narrow gate and there was also a path. And so many Christians go, yeah, but I'm inside the gate. And now let me just go and do what I want to do. And the only person that you're hurting is yourself when God is saying, all kingdom pass, run. Run, pedal to the metal, know me, walk with me, explore with me. And we said, I'm okay. I'll hang out here until it's time for you to come get me. St. Peter, in his second epistle to those first century Christians in Asia Minor, this is his concern. His concern that, that Christians would lollygag, that Christians would, would slack off, that they would, they, that they would not invest in their walk with Christ. And instead of pursuing the heart of Christ with all their might, not to earn or prove or keep anything, but to maximize it. This is at the heart of the theology of 2 Peter, that there are some dangers, some dangers within the church that can attack the minds and the thinkings of Christians and make them lazy, make them uh, overly content with what they've experienced already of the park, of the kingdom, and that we would just slack off and lollygag and meander and say that it's good enough. And what Peter warns us, and what Micah Coat did so well last Sunday, hit it out of the park, that you really can become ineffective as a real born-again Christian. And we really can become in, unfruitful, and we really can become forgetful and in so doing, we can stumble and we can trip and fall, not out of the kingdom, but cause damage to our lives, even as children of God. Ineffective, unfruitful, and that we can become nearsighted to the point of blindness and forget that which God has already done for us. How tragic. So we're in week five of a 15-week of series in 2 Peter. And to remind you, this is the second letter he's writing to the same group of people. It's four years later. Four years later because the uh, subject matter and the times have changed. And the big idea of 2 Peter as opposed to 1 Peter is this. That which the devil could not do with persecution from the, on the outside. And that was what 1 Peter was about. The devil would attempt to do 
as a wolf in sheep's clothing from the inside. False teachers, false teachings, and false thinking. And he, was, he knew that his t- time of his death was very soon. He died the same year that he wrote 2 Peter. And this was so important that he would get it to them and get it to us. Oh, please do not waste your ticket. Please don't waste your time here on planet Earth. Take that which has already been secured by the blood of Christ that's already yours, that cannot be taken away. Take it and maximize it. This is what chapter one is all about. And because it's so, so just saturated through the context, I'm going to begin at verse one. We're really going to focus in on verses 10 through 11 today. But uh, we want to see the flow of thought here. It's magnificent. It's one of the most rich portions of scripture I've ever delved into. And I'm just thoroughly delighted that uh, for my sake that we're actually doing this sermon series. So I'm going to actually start in verse one once more. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, epinosis, full knowledge, experiential, relational knowledge, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3. His divine power has granted, past tense, already done, confirmed, He has already granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the, again, epinosis, full knowledge, intimate, relational, experiential knowledge of God and Jesus. Or God, our Savior, Jesus. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. I I just want to stop here. There are some things in this text that are absolutely already given and guaranteed. Great and precious promises. Uh, We've already been uh, given a faith that is of equal standing with Peter's and all the apostles. And it's through the righteousness of Christ, not our own good works. We're going to come back to that idea. But there's other things yet to be explored, particularly this, becoming a full-blown partaker of the divine nature. There's a contingency, there's a choice that we have here in doing this, in experiencing the fullness of our life in Christ. And he says this, having escaped, that's actually happened, guaranteed, you've already escaped the corruption that is in the world, through sinful desire. For this very reason, what very reason? That there still exists an opportunity for you and I to maximize our faith. For this reason, some things that are not completed yet. For this reason, you have some decisions to make. I have some decisions to make. For this reason, you make every effort to supplement your faith. The faith is solid. The faith is sound. The faith is there Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That's done, but we're not done. So you do your part and supplement your faith with these beautiful virtues. The magnificent seven that we've been coming back to over and over again. By the way, what a great list for meditation and to memorize. Okay, virtue or goodness. Knowledge. This time it's not epinosis, it's just gnosis. 
an understanding of God and, and, and faith and theology and the way the world works. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, impulse control. When you want to do that bad thing, that temptation, or blurt out self-control. Long-suffering or perseverance that you don't buckle under the pressure. You grow in that perseverance. Godliness, Eusebius in the Greek, it means uh, well-worshipping. Like your whole life is an act of worship toward God. It's a Godward life. And then brotherly love, phileo. A genuine warmth and concern toward all believers everywhere. And then finally, agape, unconditional love even for your enemies. These are the magnificent seven. If these things, if these things are yours and increasing in verse 8 through 9, if these are yours and increasing, this is what Micah shared last week, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back to epinosis on this one. In the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is not a Christian at all. That's not what it said. I tricked you. You just went, really? I thought you were, doesn't say that. But this kind of Christian is so nearsighted that they become blind and they've forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. Wow, that's dangerous. That's damaging. The potential loss is immeasurable of what could happen because of flawed thinking from false teachers. That you could become ineffective and unfruitful to the point where you, you, you almost look like you never knew it in the first place. How tragic would that be? What could be the consequences? I believe that it's actually answered in our central verses, verses 10 through 11. Therefore, therefore what? What's therefore? Therefore, all this thought and thinking. You have some things that are guaranteed. They're yours. But there's some choices that you have to make, some lifestyle decisions. How hard are you going to push into Christ today? How hard are you going to pursue and take advantage of all that's been given to you? Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, the magnificent seven, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's at the heart of, of all these verses, specifically verses 10 through 11? Can I give you your bottom line? And so if you need to take a nap or something, you can fall asleep after this, right? But if you could at least just get this, um, you might want to stay awake because we're going to unpack it. But, but here it is. You prepare your character through holy habits. You prepare your character through holy habits and he'll prepare the party for your homecoming. Yeah, yes, you are already in the kingdom, but there is also a homecoming where you will show up physically one day. We are called to begin to live in the kingdom today and take advantage, full advantage of what we have. Yes, there will be a homecoming where we physically step in and see with our eyes, like, whoa, this is what I was running after. This is what I was breathing. This is what I was tasting. This is what I was drinking. It's familiar to me. I've never been here, but it's oh so familiar because this place was in me. Now I am in it. 
That's the homecoming. Pretty awesome? Yeah, let's take this apart, and um, I'm going to begin here with this. It's a corrective statement. Let me tell you where it comes from, and then I'll pop it on you. Um, It comes from verse 10. 400 years ago, the Puritans, that are magnificent brothers and sisters in Christ, magnificent brothers and sisters in Christ, they followed the teaching of a very godly man named John Calvin. I want you to understand Calvinists and Calvin were not the same people. His followers, the Puritans, misinterpreted this verse. John Calvin did not. Calvinists misinterpreted this out of context, and they sparked 400 years of Christian navel-gazing. You want to know what the question is? Am I saved or not? Am I going to heaven or not? What do I do? Oh, be the more diligent to make your calling and election sure or certain. What do I do? What's in the context? Oh, the magnificent seven. Am I I good enough? Uh, Am I self-controlled enough? Am I enduring enough? Do I see these in me? And and it's an inward navel-gazing of Christian virtue. John Calvin did not teach this. Quite the opposite. Now, granted, how did they get that? One word. One word. It's the word for sure or certain. The minority use of this word, historically in classical Greek and even sometimes in the Bible, uh, babios is the word. The minority use of this word is a metaphorical usage for a title deed or proof of purchase. And so the Puritans who followed John Calvin but actually didn't believe what he believed on this matter chose that, that term, and, and it's, by the way, we'll unpack real quick. It's not, it's not in the context for, for 2 Peter 1.10 to be used for you to do self-examination to see if you've got enough Christian fruit to prove that you're actually born again. That is not what Peter was saying. It's what the Puritans said now for 400 years and not John Calvin either. Follow? So that's the first rendering of the word certain. You want to know what the primary and majority usage and actually the root word meaning of certainty or make it sure. It actually comes from the root word that means to walk or your feet or your foundation or your stability your firmness of faith. See, the idea is that you already have your faith. It's locked in. Listen, can I just make it super clear? If you have looked to Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, and you believe that in your heart for your sins he paid, you're going to heaven and there's not a darn thing you can do to get rid of it. But if you don't, you're going to hell. Simple as that so black and white, across the centuries of the scriptures. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of works, the gift of God. Not of works, otherwise you could brag about it. So never are we invited to look inward to see if there's enough evidence to prove something that Jesus said, to tell us die, it is finished. Believe it or not, take it or leave it, receive it or reject it. 
that we are never to look inward to see if we're justified. We can look inward to see if we're growing. But here's the problem. If you twist that, you'll become a Mormon. Good works, works theology, self-righteousness. Earn it, prove it, keep it, fight for it. Just try to get to heaven by being good enough. It's every other world religion, but not Christianity. Jesus paid it all. Paid it all. You believe it or not? Now, good works are really, 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 really important, and that's why they're in here. But not to prove your justification, but to explore the fullness of the kingdom and take full advantage of that which God has already granted to you. Can I unpack that a little bit more for you? And here's the, here's the, the fill in the blank. Assurance is to be found only in the face of Jesus. Only. Only in the face of Jesus. Here's a couple of things just to pay attention to. Uh, I'm going to give you four. I could make it seven. I don't think I can reduce it beyond four. Here's, here's how I know that I know that I know that they were wrong. And I know that's a bold statement, but I'll stand with Calvin on this one. And uh, many others. Uh, by the way, a lot of my book, books that I, I studied from all different traditions butcher this. I, it's, it's in us. We, we thought that this was the central text, but it's totally out of context and it doesn't match the actual meaning of the word. And what, what Peter's trying to get out here. So here's four quick proofs. Number one is the people that he was writing to were already confirmed as justified. He says this in verse one to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That's the only people that he's writing to. He's not gonna then say, hey, by the way, and then you wanna question that to see if you're godly enough yet. Okay, secondly, the, the, the beginning of verse 10, the one that's in, under scrutiny, he begins with, therefore, brothers. Guess what? Most of them are not Jews. He can't, he's not saying national, Israel, Jewish brothers or some other thing. No, he's actually confirming brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I am not questioning your salvation. What he's about to do is not for them to question it, to look inward, to see if they're good enough yet, to prove that whether or not they were really adopted into the family. So that's number one. They're already confirmed by Peter's own writing. Secondly, justification is always through the righteousness and the righteous works of Christ, never our own. This is actually the second part of verse one. By the righteousness, well, let me read the whole thing. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by their own good works and evidences. No, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Justification is always by his righteousness, not mine. Three, real Christians, and this is what Micah taught on last week, uh, spiritual atrophy, like his leg that's broken, his ankle, and uh, what's the other word? Atrophy and neglect, something like that. Muscle memory. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Bailed us all out. Um, yeah, listen, real Christians, ready for this? They can backslide. Absolutely. It's just, it's, it's in the scripture. They can become useless, unfruitful, ineffective, nearsighted to the point of being blind. And then they can fall. Not fall from grace or out of adoption. But we can absolutely fall off the path and into sin. Absolutely. Confirm fact throughout all of the scriptures. Real born-again Christians can fall 
and yet still, yet still be cleansed from their former sins. It's right in there. And then number four, the immediate and general context of 2 Peter is the great danger of not having spiritual, moral, and theological growth and stability of faith, and so, in so doing, waste your life, waste your ticket. Yes, you will still arrive on heaven's golden shore. I, I, I wish um, perhaps it wasn't that easy, So, because then maybe I could get you to work a little harder. Maybe I could manipulate you and, and get you to give a little more money, but I can't. The scripture doesn't allow it. It's free. But if you stop growing and you lose your stability, you can severely hurt yourself and those you love and damage your future. And so out of love, Peter's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, in fact, the thesis, I said, every, the beginning of, the, of, of 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3, he's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So you can't blame someone else. He's given you everything you need to succeed. So if you don't, it's your fault, not his. That was on the camp out. Sort of a soft introduction to this series. But at the end of the book, his pastor's heart comes out where he says, in 2 Peter 3.17, you therefore beloved, beloved of God, beloved of me, and I've never even met you. You therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. I don't want you to wreck your life. You're firmly in the grip of grace, but please don't wreck your life. Please don't waste the opportunity that you have when you've been given an all-kingdom pass. Run, run, run. So what did John Calvin say? And why do I anchor this? John loves this word election. And we just read calling and election. It really means you're chosen by God and he's the one that saved you. It was conferred to you by grace through faith. And so you're going to hear the word election, but let me just throw this up. I think, is that quote from, there it is. But if we are elected in him, if God really chose us, if we're saved, we cannot find the certainty of our election in ourselves. John Calvin never said to look within and see if you're good enough or grew enough or sensitive enough. Do not look at yourself. Christ then is the mirror in which we ought and in which Without deception, we may contemplate our election. Stop looking at yourself. Because even if you're good enough, it makes you arrogant and obnoxious and self-righteous and judgmental of others, and it's ugly. That's what happens when you look within and you find enough to say, I think I'm a saved one. What's wrong with them? It's ugly. It doesn't work. And then the other side is if you look in and go, oh, crud, I suck. And then you go, no, not me. You don't volunteer, you don't show up, you pout. And then you're stuck navel-gazing. Am I saved? Am I going to heaven? Am I going to hell? It's like, get off it! Do you believe or not? Yes? Let's run. Let's go after Jesus. That's what Calvin's saying. We look to Christ. We look to the face of Christ for assurance. Not within. And I thought that was so important. That's probably the major part of the message. 
of what it's not saying. So what is it saying, though? We have a little time left, right? What is it saying? It's saying this. To make your calling and election certain, baby us, means it's to take that which is already yours and strengthen it, stabilize it, supplement it, and utilize it. Run! It's already yours. Stop wondering, is the golden ticket mine or not? Uh, am I good enough to have this golden ticket? No, you're not. Absolutely, you're not good enough. Neither am I. I suck. But Jesus is good enough. Take your ticket and run. Explore the life in Christ that you've now been given. Here's the, the sub point. Jesus has already empowered you or empowered me to stabilize and strengthen my faith, but I must choose. I got daily choices. I got, I got choices that turn into habits. Habits turn into character. Character turns into destiny and lifestyle. And so we want to make good choices. We want to develop holy habits. And Jesus has already given that to us. Verse 3, everything pertaining to life and godliness is already yours. Verse 4, there's a, an, an option right here. Are you going to become a full-blown partaker of the divine nature, or are you going to sit by the fountain and eat churros? Okay? Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort. Don't blame God. Don't let go. Let God. We get to press in. We get to get on our own two feet and run into the kingdom. And then verse 10, what we're just reading here, that's at the heartbeat. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. These are parallel thoughts. Go after it. Be diligent. Pursue the heart of Christ in your habits. We have choices created in the image of God to reflect his glory. We have, we have an ability, a volitional quality to us as human beings. Make good choices. William Law, uh, 17th century, he was an Anglican minister in England. He refused to give allegiance to the king because he felt that was important to only give allegiance to Christ. This is a good guy. He, just, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't hail the king of England. Not because he hated him, just said, hey, I can't do that. So he got kicked out as a, a minister, as a vicar. But um, he said this in relationship to growing in faith, in knowing and experiencing God, and I, I love this, for God has made no promises of mercy to the slothful and negligent. Just hanging out at the fountain, he's made no promises. His mercy is only offered to our frail and imperfect, but best endeavors to practice all manner of righteousness. There's something that we get to choose and pursue with our hearts in our full being. Go after these magnificent seven virtues in your life. So how are you currently pursuing the kingdom of God and these holy habits in your own life? Can I give you the final fill in the blank? And this is kind of the heads up. This is how it works. I've already said it actually, but let me just uh, make sure we got it. Choices lead to habits, which lead to character, which determines quality of life and eternity. And that's found in verse 11. Verse 11. Let me back up to a little bit of verse, the end of verse 10. For if, that's third class conditional, meaning it may or may not be true. 
It's not a guaranteed thing. It's not probably true. It's a 50-50. It's a you got a choice. If you practice these qualities, which ones? The seven great, magnificent seven. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Fall away from Christ? No. Fall into sin and off the path. And then, to give a different picture, verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What in the world is a rich entrance being provided? See, I've been a believer for lots of years. I've been in lots and lots of conversations, read lots of books, been in lots of arguments and debates. And for whatever reason, there seems to be this really negative view of the idea that there is a reward for faithful Christian living when we get to heaven. Heaven is a gift. I see it all over the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. That there is a rewardedness for faithful living to press into the kingdom of God. Why is this so unpopular? It's like we like a communist version of our Christianity. I get that. There's a portion and there's parables that say, look, look, we're all going to be paid the same wage. That is entrance into the kingdom. Simple faith gets you in. But faithful living gets you celebrated. You go, I don't want to be celebrated. Uh, I think you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay? And so this is going to affect your life. It's going to affect how when you get bumped and when life gets really hard and crazy, what comes spewing out of you is either going to be the character in the life of Christ because it's been nurtured in your life or a lot of venom and toxicity and cynicism is going to come puking out. And you're still a Christian. But also, the entrance into the kingdom is going to be different. Okay, let me give you the contrast that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. He says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. So the entrance is described as a fiery trial. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one, born-again Christian, has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, the foundation is, is Jesus and his righteousness. Now we get to choose what kind of, of building are we going to build in this life? What kind of character are we going to develop? What kind of holy habits are we going to pursue? The work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But then there's other born-again Christians spoken of here in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but as through fire. So it's that quality of life that begins now that's at stake and that entrance into the eternal kingdom, if we put these together, what Peter is so, so passionately warning those first century believers, and now us right here, right now, is this sloppy, lazy, ineffective, unfruitful, nearsighted, blind, forgetful, will stumble, will fall, and be saved yet so as through fire. But... We strengthen, we stabilize, we stand, we, we enrich, we, we supplement our faith with virtue. 
and knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness and brotherly love and agape, unconditional love even for enemies. Then we will stand and we will be provided an entrance in the eternal kingdom that is called rich. So bottom line, once again, you prepare your character through holy habits, and he'll prepare the party for your homecoming. How do we do that? What's a practical, practical takeaway, tangible next step? What will we do this afternoon? What will we, do, will we do tomorrow morning that we can begin this process? If this warning is this clear, both from Paul and Peter, what do we do tomorrow morning? Can I give a book recommendation? Okay, I'll tell you how I got it really quick. I just finished reading... Becoming Dallas Willard. It's a biography of the life of Dallas Willard, friend of Tompkins. You knew him at least, met him. Um, philosophy professor at USC. He was actually a pastor of pastors. And I've had this book on my shelf for a number of years, and I've kind of neglected some, I've read this, but some of his other writings that, that I'm looking forward to now. I know what I'm reading next. The rest of Dallas Willard. But this is called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And at the heartbeat, and I recommend this, Get this book. Let's read this in the new year together. How to develop holy habits. But the idea is this. In the moment of crisis, the real you is going to come spewing out. If you haven't been meeting with the Lord, if you haven't been walking with the Lord the way he walked, that what's going to come spilling out might be much less than your Christian foundation. The only way around that is to develop holy habits. You know, Jesus actually said in, in John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Did it ever occur to us that we're not just to believe in him, we are actually to follow him? So what did Jesus do that we should follow? Can I name Six things that I think probably correlate to the Magnificent Seven. Here's the six things that we see in a steady rhythm of holy habits in Jesus, the Son of God. We see him in solitude. Alone. Meeting with the Father. We see him in silence. Where he's not spewing out his wish List. He's actually solitude and silence. By the way, every believer throughout the centuries that's really developed Christ-like character have done these six as well. So solitude, silence, prayer, fasting, serving. You know, Jesus served so long and hard that he was exhausted. He even skipped eating. His disciples came and said, what are, you, what are you doing? He goes, I'm doing the will of my Father. My food, my food is to do the will of the Father. It nurtures me. They're like, did someone give him lunch? They didn't get it. He's serving the Lord in a Samaritan village. He's hungry and he's exhausted. But that service nurtured his soul. And then finally, celebration. Do you know how to party in Jesus' name? Because Jesus knew how to celebrate. And by the way, if you don't know how to party, you're not going to like heaven. 
It's going to be fantastic. It's these wonderful six lifestyle rhythms, holy habits of Jesus that we see reflected down through the centuries that people that make the, the most progress in the Magnificent Seven to a man and to a woman, these Magnificent Six are part of their journey. Silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, service, and celebration. So here's my question. What are you going to do with the rest of the month? What are you going to do with 2022? Can we just make it official? We're going to be a church of individuals that are pushing hard into intimacy with Christ, that we're taking spiritual days off for spiritual retreat, for silence and solitude. We're skipping meals at times because we are more hungry for Christ than we are for our own stomachs. That prayer becomes the major defining thing about journey people. That we sign up and we serve till it hurts. If not here somewhere, you're giving your life away. And then finally, we are celebrating. We know how at appropriate intervals to sing, lift up our voices, to high-five, to hug, and to say, great is the Lord. And we celebrate that together. John Wesley said this. It was a common saying among the Christians of the primitive church. Quote, the soul and the body make a man. The spirit and discipline make a Christian. Implying that none could be a real Christian without the help of Christian discipline. But if this be so, is it any wonder that we find so few Christians for where is Christian discipline? Please let this not be said about us. Amen? Bottom line again, you prepare your character through holy habits. He'll prepare the party for your homecoming. Can we pray? Father, I'm not sure what just came out. <laughs> so delighted for my sister on the platform. This is great. Lord, thank you for your word. Second Peter's magnificent. To understand the difference between uh, just a free gift and a stewardship of a sacred privilege. Inspire us. Make us hungry. Lord, your word said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're the ones that are going to be filled. Lord, remove our appetite for the shallow, unstable things of this world. Money and success, significance and status. Fame, none of those things. They're, they're, they just increase the problems. But Lord, with you, when you give pleasure, when you shine your face, when we seek you, you say that we will find you. And in that moment, we will begin to taste life in the kingdom. So Lord, would you make us hunger? Would you make us imagine what are the possibilities of what you could do with my life? If I were to fully press into you and fully surrender, what might you do in and through me? What would that be like to wake up on heaven's shore and to hear those words in a big smile in the Savior's face? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful in a few things. Let me put you in charge of many things. Oh, that would be the delight of our heart. But I'm, af I'm afraid, Lord, at times we don't imagine that the scriptures are actually true. 
Would you thoroughly wash and cleanse our minds, our imaginations? Would you replace stupid low thoughts with holy, heavenly, scriptural thoughts? And that we would find great joy and delight even as you keep us humble as we press into you in the kingdom of God today. We pray in Jesus' name together. Amen.